This is the Territory Story Podcast with Leon Logan Nathan and Peter Gowers. Thanks to Ward Keller, the Territory Law Firm. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Territory Story Podcast. I am your host, Leon Logan Nathan, and with me, my co-host, Peter Gowers. How are you, Pete? Hello there. How are you, Leon? I'm well, mate. And, uh, you know, uh, as we always do, we talk about the weather. It feels a stinker today. I've got to tell you, mate, I don't know what's going on. And yeah. hopefully by the time this podcast comes out, you know, we can talk about it being cold again because uh, <laughs> uh, a- it's just annoyingly hot. Yeah, I wish I could say the same, my friend. But um, uh, the, the the weather's just one of those things that's constantly um, constantly figuring in our lives at the moment for opposite reasons. Me because it's too cold and you because it's too hot. Yeah, but yeah. it makes a great segue to something I do want to talk about before we get started. What's that? Which is kind of topical for what we're going to talk about anyway. When you're coming back up here. Well, that's part one. Uh, <laughs> it seems uh, so on Thursday, yeah. our, our friend uh, Chris Walsh from the NT Independent said, well, they're not sure what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, on Friday, the, um, uh, the commandant said, well, as of next week, Hmm. We're going to start to look at it on a weekly basis, <laughs> which means he's probably got at least three weeks up his sleeve. Hmm. And then come Friday when Queensland said, we're opening July 10, hmm. sudden South Australia and the NT said, oh, well, we'll probably go July 20. So what was going to be a very slow task. Now, this is my big bugbear. So he's come out and said, we're going to give businesses 30 days notice. Hmm. Hmm. The business community have responded and said, let us know by 5 p.m. we'll be open the next day. What the hell are they talking about, 30 days? Oh, because people need to, I don't know, organise the, the power and whatever else they've turned off. <laughs> no, there's absolutely no reason whatsoever. Oh, now, the other thing I wanted to talk about is, um, well, it's, it's not directly related to the NT. It yeah. sort of is. Because we know about the... Um, we know about the deal that we don't know about that uh, the commandant signed in uh, in China last right. year. Right, mate. Victorian politics yeah. has just blown sky high. Over Tell that me, issue. Well, oh no, because it's something else, mate. It it is out of control. The yeah. the Labor power broker. Yeah. I think they used to call them numbers men back yes. in the day. Or faceless men. <laughs> faceless men, exactly. Uh, w- was busted over a 12-month period, branch stacking throughout Melbourne and Victoria and literally saying the most amazing things about his party members, the Premier and so on and so forth. He was busted actually withdrawing cash from the ATM mm-hmm. to, to give to the runners to then give to the people who they were paying their memberships for to stack the branches, um, despite saying, oh, this will be good for my... And he actually knew about it. Hmm. 60 Minutes and The Age busted him. He actually hmm. said, oh, I know all about it. It's fine. It'll be good for my career. And uh, as of this morning, he's been sacked. He's under uh, the Victorian version of ICAC investigation and the Victorian police are looking to send him up the Nile as well. He is in big trouble. Now... His former boss, mm. Daniel Andrews, mm. best mates with the, bo- the boss up there. So, 
I'm not drawing any parallels or any lines between the two, but... Oh, mate, we're already in the sin bin as it is, mate. You're just making this worse now. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, we're going to be in a sin bin more just for the next guest that's coming on the podcast, you know? <laughs> so anyway, I, I, I couldn't not talk about that before we got into the next guest. And apparently because, there's a uh, second Victorian MP that's resigned from the ministry. Correct. The, I think the treasurer. So right. it, it, it literally is going to be... Um, yes, assistant treasurer, Robin Scott. It's it's going to be chaotic for a while. So oh. if, if our friends uh, in in the um, wedding cake are taking advice from their friends yeah. at uh, Spring Street, yeah. watch this space. Well, here's a message to not just Labor but the CLP as well uh, and uh, Territory uh, Alliance and anybody else that's got a party, including the Greens. And Trevor. To- uh, d- democracy, it's not hard. It really is not hard. You know, there are rules. You just follow them. Don't do anything dodgy and allow the people to make a decision. That's it. Mm. Yeah. It, it, look, I don't want to stick the boot into this guy because it's the easiest thing to do in politics. But the more I hear about how politics is done in the US, the more I look at democracy and think, man, it's the concept is right, but the... It's been gamed. Yeah. And it's been gamed so badly over there that now it's just starting to crumble. But you you look at this guy in Melbourne, mate, and honestly, I, I don't get shocked by much. I really don't. But I was watching this bloke, he reminded me of, do you, have you ever watched Survivor? Mm, not really. Okay. So you, do you know what Survivor okay, is? No, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Every series of Survivor, yeah. there's always a point in the show, it's normally about halfway, yeah. where one person declares themselves unbeatable and they're going to win this game. You're right. And it's usually that eviction ceremony that that person goes home. Right. That was no different with this bloke. He thought... He was the most powerful man in politics. He had the whole game worked out and no one could touch him and the whole house of cards has fallen down around itself. Right. What you say is absolutely right. It's tell us your policies, say what you're going to do, do what you're going to say and and let people vote for you based on the truth and the merits of what it is you're proposing. Well... That's a, a, a lovely segue into the introduction for our next guest. Um, now, uh, you know, you and me, uh, perhaps more me than you, are going to get once again, uh, you know, um, uh, pigeonholed into being, you know, <laughs> CLP-centric, and this is a CLP-centric podcast, but you know what? I'm just over it, mate. I... There's only so many times you can ask Labour people to come on the podcast and if they Correct. don't want to, you know, Correct. they're bad luck, not ours. So um, I have very great, great pleasure in announcing our next guest. Um, not so much because he is uh, running for the seat of Casuarina, but because he's just a good mate and he's just an all-round good guy. I have a lot of respect for this guy, uh, notwithstanding his politics. Uh, and I would like him no matter what party he chose to run for. Uh, I've known him now for probably the best part of 15-odd years. 
He's larger than life, uh, but he's just a humble, just, he's just a really nice guy. Uh, so, Tony Skilling, welcome to hello. the podcast. Hello, Leon, and hello, Peter. Welcome, Tony. That, that, is, a, that is a massive intro. Can you live up to it? <laughs> uh, I'll struggle, Peter, I think. Uh, <laughs> you know, Leon's the man with the gift. Oh, God, no, mate. Uh, look, so Tony is the uh, manager and owner of Mortgage Choice, which, uh, Tony, you told me, when did you start this franchise? Yeah, it was in uh, February uh, 1995. 95. Oh, yeah. I, wow. left, uh, I left my employer and uh, came, uh, travelled back into my home in Nakara and, uh, and started Mortgage Choice in the Northern Territory, and part of went- a franchise group nationally. Right, and you are the first and the oldest franchisee, is that right? Well, there were um, there were twelve franchises that started when I did, um, and one had started beforehand in Cairns. Yeah, and uh, and the guy in Cairns um, finished working about uh, six or seven years ago, and um, and I was the only other one surviving of those first twelve. So therefore, I took the mantle as the uh, as the longest serving franchise of um, franchisee of Mortgage Choice in Australia. Wow. Well done. 25 well, yeah. years this year, just completed. Right. And they haven't been easy years either, have they, Tony? <laughs> <laughs> it's been some really good years in the Northern Territory over those times and and some years that just were, um, yeah, best left untalked about. Mm. Right, right. Well, look, mate, we've, uh, you know, we've been friends for a very long time, but I must say I'm quite excited to have you on this podcast to hear your, your territory story, mate, because... I actually don't know it. I know parts of it, but I don't know the whole thing. So I'm going to take a stab and guess that you were born in Victoria? Correct, yeah. South Gippsland, Victoria, they, they, uh, they called it God's country then, but that's when, you know, God lived there. <laughs> <laughs> Where's he gone? <laughs> and Tony, can you, can, you, can you go so fast to tell us what year that was? 1960, Leon. Um, I was born in uh, the uh, Wurrail District Hospital in uh, Leangatha. Right. Mm. And in South Gippsland. How far away is that from Melbourne? About 120k. Right. And uh, big um, big Catholic. At the time, about two and a half hours drive at the time, and now about an hour and uh, 50 minutes drive. Oh, yeah, yeah, fair enough. And I was going to say, is that was it to a big Catholic family, or am I being presumptuous? I suppose we grew into a big Catholic family. My um, my mum was the oldest of twelve. Um, right. My dad was the um, and her her um, family were all here in Australia. They came out in nineteen uh, fifty five from Holland, um, and my dad came out in forty nine uh, as a single man, nineteen years of age, and um, and so we were. Uh, I was the second of five. Um, kids, um, one older brother, um, one younger brother, and two younger sisters. Right, and so they were both Dutch. Your parents, both Dutch. Um, dad was uh, dad came out um, uh, on the Volendam in in as I said forty nine. Um, he uh, he came out and to uh, to do a job in Victoria with the Dempsey family, and uh, uh, Frank Dempsey was a renowned Victorian boxer at the time. Yeah. And uh, and well known, and of course, um, uh, you know he uh, very slow talking and very uh, very fast with his fists. Uh, very gentle man, and Dad uh, enjoyed his life there. And uh, at the ripe age of twenty five, he was settling 
Dutch migrants' uh, families into Victoria as a sideline, and he met um, my mum's younger sister and uh, thought she was a bit young and asked, did she have an eye? <laughs> <laughs> That's very polite of him. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, mum was, uh, at the time, was uh, 18, and by the time she was 19, they were married. So, um, and, uh, and the younger sister, who was two years younger or, or two kids younger, um, married a guy five years older than dad and... Uh, and his younger brother married the sister next. <laughs> <laughs> oh, right, right. So it was, so it was like a, an interesting family. But, yeah, it's good. We um, we have a family reunion every five years. Um, this year's was in Easter, at Easter, but, of course, it didn't happen. It was um, taking yeah. place in Queensland for the first time. All the others have been back in Victoria. So t- tell me something. The uh, the uh, I'm just thinking with, with the... Uh, the Dutch coming out to Australia. Did they? Why did they go and settle in Leongatha? Like, what, what was the pull there? Yeah, the uh, it was um, just the Victorians required workers at the time, and um, so these were um, like the you know the ten pound problems. They uh, they were brought over to work at a particular place for six months, and that was their work out. Um, the the Volendam landed in Fremantle first, and then it went round to Melbourne and unloaded its cargo of people and the uh and so that's where they worked for six months then um you know they'd either stay on you know where they had been placed or um move on families ended up in Bogabilla, but um uh, you know the the older kids would you know go and work straight away so anyone over 18 uh went straight to the workforce mm. what was the um was it the power industry that they were working on when they first got there? No, that was pretty well, uh, that was more of um, other parts of Europe went to that. Um, okay. uh, the Czechs and, and the Poles ended up in uh, in the snowy, you know, area and mm. uh, did a lot of that work. Um, there would have been some Dutch there too who worked in it, but, um, you know, they were very much an integrating, you know, group. Uh, the Dutch, when they were told, you know, you're in Australia, be Australian, mm. and, uh, and they were very keen, you know, to do so. So very quick to integrate into the communities and um, become part of the community rather than hold their, you know, their little sector groups. Pauline would have been happy with that. Eh? Pauline would have been happy with that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yes. But, you know, they they were, you know, they mostly, uh, you know, a lot of, I mean, there were different, uh, you know, Dutch reform as well as as Catholics came out. But, you know, the Catholics uh, was pretty well the closest link that they had. So... Mm. Between all the Irish and and all the Dutch, um, it was uh, pretty um, you know pretty strong. And of course, the Italians were very strong in the in mm. the uh, Catholic Church as well. So you had a, a you know big migrant families of Italians, Dutch, and um, and Irish that uh, all mixed together. Mm. So, mate, uh, what was it like growing up there in the sixties? Yeah, I grew up in a dairy farm. Um, you know, in dairy farming. When uh, when we started, we we're in uh, in the back hills, and then uh, came down to the flats and. We lived on um, on a farm, a share farming, on a farm at Corner Inlet near where Barry's Beach um, Oil and Gas uh, for the uh, the Bass Strait developments were. The farm went down to a flounder breeding ground, um, so uh, it was a very handy spot to go and, and mm. catch a bit of dinner. Yeah. Uh, you know, the spear, uh, all you had to do was avoid the fisheries and the wildlife dogs <laughs> <laughs> being let off and... But, you know, Dad, Dad would make you up some spears and an underwater light and say, off you go. 
you know, <laughs> down to the mud flats and get yourself yeah. some flounder. Um, you know, it was a good life um, in dairy farming as a, as a kid. Uh, you know, uh, you just ride your bike around, you climb the hills, you rabbit, you know, trap for rabbits and there were plenty of them and, and occasionally, uh, you know, a fox which you had to uh, had to take out. And, uh, yeah, it was just a, a healthy life um, growing up in Victoria in the 60s. Um, and it seemed, you know, it was a booming time. Um, things were coming through, everything was going boom, boom, boom around Australia. Uh, you know, inflation was very nice and high and and we were um, we were doing very well. Yeah, so uh, we really enjoyed it. We started off in in the back of um, of the hills between Merby North and Leangatha and then ended up in Tura because um, mum ended up with tuberculosis uh, after the my sister was born, the third. And so uh, the family moved close to where her parents were and, and the uh, siblings were able to look after us while dad continued to work. Um, mm. She survived that after six months uh, in the sanatorium in um, in Melbourne, and um, and my uh, fourth, uh, almost my next youngest sister was born. I think nine months to the day that um, <laughs> she got home. <laughs> and uh, and then, yeah, and then uh, my younger brother after, and uh, you know, I, I really didn't get to know him much. Uh, he was about eleven when I uh, left Victoria. In uh, you know, as a twenty-year-old, to come to Darwin with uh, with the bank. So, I'd grown up in dairy farming, carting hay uh, to make my my millions during the uh, the summer seasons, and uh, and you know, where I was a big lad, so I was able to you know to move a lot of hay around in those uh, those days. And Dad taught us to work hard and uh, and to be on time. I um, I kept one of his two mantras. Uh, that was the work hard. <laughs> <laughs> hardly, hardly ever on time, and, uh, and so it was. Uh, it was a good, uh, a really good upbringing, and something you know I'd love to have shared. But you know, times change. Um, Daring went through some very hard times at one stage in the seventies. You know, we were down to uh, mm. to a dollar a cow basically, and you're only keeping them because it costs more for a bullet. Yeah. And I'm not being rude. It was it yeah. was literally that, and. Um, yeah, Dad made decisions to um, to uh, grow our our farm at that time, and uh, and to change the seasons for our uh, our cows. Uh, brought them uh, into calf four months early, and that meant that we were producing milk in May when there was a shortage, and so we were selling. You know, at the, our production was at its highest in uh, you know at a time, and that required us to you know to bale green hay and do different things at the time that. Um, other farmers weren't prepared to do, but he was a stubborn Dutchman, so he uh, mm. he stuck in it, and um, and so we we went through it reasonably well. And but you know I remember the days you know of cleaning out the you know beehive and then draining the honey and melting the wax and making soap and you know there were tough mm. times in those uh, those seventies, um, which were good times to grow up. Even though uh, we never went hungry, uh, we always had a feed on the table, and um, and there were always uh, you know there was always love in the family, so it was a good. Really good time, mm. Tony. Um, this this is um, just for my own self indulgence. This question, but Lee and Gatha is obviously a pretty famous uh, sporting district. <laughs> Any names that you grew up around with uh, in those days that that would be household names today? Well, you know, um, Stevie Wallace was uh, in my uh, my my house at uh, at wow. school. Um, I was house captain. He was one of my young fellows, a good sportsman. Um, yeah. Uh, I, my sister is married to uh, the Heppel family, so Dyson Heppel, uh, captain okay. of Essendon, is my nephew. Oh, there you go. Um, 
and uh, and Aaron is the captain of uh, his younger brother is the captain of um, the Essendon VFL, VFL side. There you go. And the older brother there is uh, is making his name for himself in the in the you know, um, public speaking area. So they're doing very well. Um, <clears throat> my family, um, you know, they would you know always we're all always involved in sport. Um, I was uh, probably more involved in music than I was in sport at the time. Um, I really got into sport here. I played basketball in Gippsland. Um, so, uh, you know, I wasn't all that famous at that. Um, I uh, always had uh, struggled with my eyes. Um, and uh, But I hold a, a record in Victoria still uh, in cricket, uh, an 11th wicket stand. Uh, I made seven uh, out of 111. <laughs> So, <laughs> I was not out. <laughs> Let me guess, you were number eleven. No, I was number eleven batsman, and, uh, <laughs> and I was not out. The other guy went out. Oh, brilliant! <laughs> so, uh, yeah, look, in, in you know the Salmons were a, a um, yep. yeah, family for football in in that area. Cadell Evans uh, was known in that area. Um, you know, for recycling. Um, He's claimed by a few areas. Canal, oh, yes, I loved him. But you know, there's a there's a whole range of uh, you know, but you know, there's the current coach of the um, of the of the um, uh, cycling Australia is uh, was from there, um, yeah. velodrome uh, rider, and uh, you know, there's it, it was a healthy you know area, and some really um, you know yeah. good sporting names came uh, out of that area, particularly Merbin North as well. Mm. You know, they've got uh, they've got players um, in across the league from there, and and Morwell, you know, not too far away in that central Gippsland. Um, you know, as far as football goes, and a lot of other sports um, as well. So, yeah, it's um, nothing to be uh, you know to be you know ra- raving about. But um, you know, I left there as I said in 1981 mm. uh, as a 20 year old, and and I really uh, you know I can't claim. You know, uh, to to be famous with anyone there uh, anymore except <laughs> Stevie, who played for Footscray. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very good player. His son now plays as well for Footscray. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so yeah. And so, how did you sort of drift out of Victoria and end up up here, or did you? Yeah, go so it was else? interesting. I um I started off um you know my schooling years were were good. I was also a reasonably good scholar, but um obviously um had other interests as well. So I. You know, I'd uh, chase around in in many other things. Um, I finished year twelve uh, the first time and uh, and had failed English surprisingly. Um, done well in this in the other side. So um, stubborn as I was, I decided I was going to go and pass English. So I made the decision to go back, and then I started getting um, invites from universities to uh, to mm. go and do petrochemical engineering and and uh, you know um, RMIT for computer programming and. And I said to uh, Mum, "No, I'm going to go and pass English." So I went back and did Year Twelve again and failed English again. <laughs> <laughs> and so the but office were withdrawn. I did well. Up, I got my economics, and I got my maths, and I got my chemistry, and, uh, and all the things you know on the other side. But I just couldn't come to grasp with this reading a book and telling a story about it. It just wasn't me. So, so, um, so apparently, you don't need to read or write for a being a petrochemical engineer. Then, <laughs> <laughs> well, well, not in English anyway. Not in English. Yeah, so. so, you know, that was my my whole thing. I then joined the uh, Commercial Bank of Australia uh, there um, in uh, in Victoria in Leangatha, and then and I moved to Tarragon uh, about six or eight months later, and uh, I was reading a. 
a story about people going to the Solomon Islands and to um, you know Kiribati and and um, and Darwin. I thought, oh well, I've got to stick my name down for these these places. They seem like interesting places to go and work. <laughs> and uh, and uh, no idea where they were. Had you know no. Clue. <laughs> Um, anyway, I uh, suddenly uh, I get a phone call in June, and um, and I was driving back and forth from Tarragon. I was still playing basketball in Leengatha and Tarragon, and and I would uh, driving home to look after the farm uh, because mum and dad were taking their May holiday just before the um, you know the cows were calved, and uh, so um, I uh, I was asked uh, to go to Darwin, and I thought, oh, geez, that's a bit surprising. So who do I talk to, you know, and um, so I was told to ring this guy named Mudguts uh, to see what it was uh, all about. <laughs> so, Sounds overqualified. <laughs> he, was at, he was at the upper Menangatang branch in, uh, in, in Victoria. And so I rang up Mr Mudguts, as I called him at the time. <laughs> had no idea. <laughs> as a young fellow from the country, this was Mr Mudguts. And, uh, and <laughs> so anyway, I, uh, I, was, I was asking... I, I said yes. I'd like to go to Darwin. That's fine. Um, because uh, his only thing uh, question to me is, "Do you have a beer?" And I said, "Yeah, I have a beer." He said, "You'll do okay." The <laughs> sum title of my uh, introduction. He, uh, I, I then um, mum and dad rushed home because you know their their favourite son, of course, was leaving um, Victoria to go to Darwin for <laughs> two years, and um, prodigal son, <laughs> and so. Uh, I caught my first flight, the TAA flight, um, first class from Adelaide, uh, down, down to Adelaide, mm. Adelaide to uh, Alice, Alice to uh, Tennant Creek, Catherine, and arrived here on June 16th. So that's what tomorrow. Year? What, what year 30, is that? 39 years. Um, Gosh. So that was 1981. And, oh, wow. Uh, right. The 16th of June. And it was, a, um, yeah, it was an interesting thing about 3.30 in the afternoon. Walked off the plane, uh, across the tarmac to the old um, centre near uh, where the airport gates were, and um, and I thought, boy, crikey, it's hot, you know, <laughs> <laughs> just like you were saying today, June 16th, and uh, of course wow. it was the middle of the dry season, but yeah. just come out of Melbourne's changing weather, and uh, you know, wearing a suit and tie and long trousers and all uh -oh. the usual thing you did in those days. Yep. And so um, yeah, down to Winelli Branch and. That's uh, that's where I started work and lived in Stewart Park in the what is uh, they called the Coronation Street, uh, but it was uh, a Coronation um, uh, area there in Stewart Park, um, Forty Two Coronation Drive. Right, and, uh, so it's yeah, almost it was, uh, walking yeah, distance. Right, <laughs> <laughs> almost walking distance. <laughs> almost <quite>. walking <laughs> distance to anywhere, you know, uh, all the places. So yeah, it was um, it was a good life when I first came up. Um, Got to say that uh, my introduction to it. There were six people were given given a Boeing uh, for um, indiscretions at the time. There were about seventy six staff here, and uh, six were um, asked to uh, leave. Boeing. Uh, <laughs> 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 they were all here on uh, on two year transfers, but you know some of them didn't. You know it's a bit like you know, people in defence going away for the first time. People on mining sites, you know, they don't know what they're in for and. And mm -hmm. so, anyway, they uh, they were given um, marching orders and sent back home in disgrace, and um, <laughs> and I was one of the replacements. I, I I won't tell you what the disgraces were. There, <laughs> 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 on days they're probably not um, 
<laughs> Politically <Unacceptable>. correct. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I can only imagine. But uh, but one of them would be um, you know reminiscent of uh, of what's his name, the rocker who pulled the rooster's head off. Um, oh, Sid, <laughs> Sid, uh, no, no, Ozzy Osbourne. Ozzy it? Osbourne. Yeah. yeah so. Um, so anyway, yeah, the Bruce crowed at five AM and <laughs> Blake didn't like it. And he was he was lunch by nine AM. <laughs> so uh, anyway, that's uh, that was how I got here to Darwin. And um, and I've got to say that um, after five months, um, my credit card couldn't pay my personal loan anymore, and I I had to get serious about what I was I was doing here in Darwin, and and you know started playing sport and doing a second job and a third job and whatever it took to be able to. Uh, you know, get by and enjoy the lifestyle that we had here in the uh, in those sort of early 80s. They were great times. You made your own fun. It was, um, you know, a real great opportunity just to uh, to get to know a lot of people. And, yeah, they've stayed around a lot of those people. They're still here in Darwin. They still enjoy the life that we've got. And we're all growing old gracefully together. <laughs> and so uh, with Westview, we're with Westpac, right? That This is Westpac? Yeah, it was a commercial bank at the time, but uh, yeah. it... Um, it merged, we called it, um, back in uh, <laughs> 1982. But quite frankly, the Bank of New South Wales took us over <laughs> and, mm. uh, and formed West back in 82. Mm. And um, yeah, it went on that way, yeah. Uh, because you uh, had quite a few interesting colleagues because I, it became apparent to me some time ago that, you know, a number of legends were, you know, were basically uh, created by that Westpac branch. Uh, uh, amongst amongst uh, you know others yourself, um, John Kiprios uh, was a, right. a colleague, as I understand it. Yep. Uh, Wayne Smith or Smithy. Yep, Smithy. Yep. <laughs> um, the international boy. Yeah. Uh, what was it like working with all these guys? Yeah. Well, you know, John came uh, more or less after me. He's a little bit younger. Um, you know, we had uh, Lyle McIntosh at the time. Oh Lyle's my gosh, Lyle McIntosh, chief manager. Right. Um, you know, we had. Uh, and these were the Westpac days. Uh, the original you know, ones were even older, but as uh, we migrated, and you know, there's a whole range of guys who are still here. And those guys you mentioned, uh, when uh, Westpac uh, took over the government business uh, banking, and uh, you know, when the Reserve Bank basically closed its doors and and such, um, you know, Westpac uh, seemed to lose a lot of staff to government business, and uh, and so a lot of Westpac guys who would have otherwise had to transfer back, um, joined Lyle in in Department of Business and um, and various other places. And and they've been good for the uh, in the Territory. Um, yeah, there's an ombudsman who used to work for the Westpac Bank too, and there's a lot of other bankers who've been, you know, around and, and stayed and done, uh, you know, some really good things as the Territory's grown and evolved uh, here and in Alice Springs. So I think right. Crafty was a bank, bank man too at the time. Crafty. Who was that again? That Alice Crafty. Wayne Crafty was there. He had uh, nice. the, uh, you know, the uh, the steakhouse down there in Alice. And the oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, so you you did three jobs, you know, working there in uh, in Westpac as uh, as well. And then, uh, where did you meet your missus? I actually met Julie uh, in the bank when I when I arrived. Um, but we uh, we never got together, um, you know, to any great extent. Um, you know, we mix in big groups of people, and then she went nursing, uh, did some nursing training, and we got together when she was uh, doing a nursing training, and uh, she was went to her, her first exam, and I was uh, heading off to um, 
camping out at uh, Twin Falls and and uh, at the end of that weekend, she said, I don't want to be a nurse anymore. I want to come away with you guys and have a bit of fun. So, uh, <laughs> so she, she gave up nursing and, and rejoined the bank um, in, uh, in a different location. And, um, and so we, uh, we, were sort of, we got together in, um, in probably about 1982. Um, we, uh, we, I went out to Jabiru in 1985 and um and we were pretty uh, well linked up by that stage uh, we were married in 87 and um and we ended up uh then transferring um i, I stayed around darwin as as uh, with banking because by that stage you know i wasn't wanting to leave uh, even though i'd come on a two-year transfer stayed one more year and then when they said now you have to leave you know you have to go i said just find me a job anywhere i don't care where it is and uh, jabiru came up so I went out to Jabiru, had a ball out there. It was a really? great place. I mean, what the heck? Jab- I mean, Jabiru would have what, a population of about 10? <laughs> <laughs> it was a booming place at the time, a booming, you know, uh, uranium town and uh, right, right. and tourism was starting to, you know, to kick in a little bit. But it was mostly, um, mostly the, you know, the mining still at the time. Um, and, uh, you know, we provided agencies to, uh, you know, to uh, to um, Owen Pelly and and different places. You really had a good time there. And at the time, the bank still opened there at ten and closed at three. Uh, <laughs> it, everywhere else in Australia, it had gone from nine thirty to four. We were still eh? ten to three, oh, except on Thursdays you had to work to six o'clock. So it was a great place. Yeah. You get up in the morning, you know, uh, put on your tennis shoes, go down and have a game of tennis. Go home, <laughs> hook the boat onto the car, go to work. Do a day's work and then make sure you're out of there by four o'clock because you had to get on the billabong and catch yourself a barra for dinner. And uh, and the barra in those days there wasn't the fifty five centimetre necessity, right. you know, where anything pan size was acceptable. And and so you know you pick yourself up a couple of pan sized barras and and off you'd go home and have fresh barra for dinner. It was a great life. And um, I did about uh, eighteen months out there and. It was out there that I suppose the loneliness got to me, and um, and uh, Julie and I were married in '87, uh, as I said, and um, and then uh, I worked so, here for a couple more years. So, but uh, hang on, while you were in Jabiru, were you were you together with Julie? No, Julie was in Darwin, and she was coming out, and I was going in. Um, well, that's what I was. What else I was getting at. Yeah, so, yeah, no, <laughs> there's a fair bit of commuting. There's a lot of commuting, and I had very good friends here in Darwin. Um, uh, Wayne and Teresa Baker. Now, Wayne, you would know. Um, and yes, Teresa, of course. They, yes, they were uh, they very close friends, and they gave me key a key to their house. I could just drop in any time I wanted, uh, just drive in any time, and uh, and stay with them in Karama. Um, Pete, my Wayne Nova, they were on MH17, uh, the one oh, of the planes wow. that uh, got taken out, and so they were lovely folk, and um, uh. and you know really good, you know, uh, family friends, and. Uh, involved in our wedding afterwards, but uh, you know they uh, that sort of gave us the opportunity, me somewhere to stay in town uh, to come and visit Julie, and she'd come out and and visit me um, in the quarters we had out there. So yeah, it was it was uh, it was easy, you know, um, you know, to just sort of keep together a little bit, and then um, mm. I come back into town, um, and she uh, she was living with her parents still, and I was uh, I was living in the bank quarters, and. Um, Said we were married in '87, and um, and I was uh, 
shortly after, I was the bank's wet, uh, Westpac's debt collector then for three years. I was going around town uh, saying g'day to people and kneecapping <laughs> <laughs> with a big friendly smile. Uh, saying, uh, we need to have a chat. And, uh, and then I uh, I ended up um, taking a job uh, back at Winelli, um, uh, you know, in the clean up. And then they asked me to go to Tennant Creek. And, uh, and I said to them, provided you don't close the branch while I'm there because everything was closing down in those days. But mm. they assured me that that wouldn't be the case. But the one thing that happened was that Julie would not be able to have a job because we couldn't work in the same, uh, same branch. So, um, so family came along and um, our first daughter, Emma, was born um, in Tennant Creek. In Tennant Creek. Um, yeah, well, so what year was this? This was uh, 91. So, so you would know then... Um who are the people we were speaking to before, Pete, from Tennant Creek? You just want to throw me under the bus, don't no, you? No, no, I'm throwing myself under the bus as I'm talking to you. <laughs> um, Sarah, Sarah, M Maggie Hickey's daughter, Sarah Hickey. Oh, oh yeah. yeah, Sarah Hickey, yep. Yeah, um, I knew Maggie and, yeah. uh, and, um, and the, you know, Julie worked for the uh, Tennant District Times, so, um, so that was, uh, she worked at the hospital a bit as well and, and such with Emma came along and and so uh, she was born here in Darwin I I drove up um, you know to Darwin about uh, 10 or oh, no about six weeks seven weeks before Emma was due and and dropped her off at her parents here and went back down to, to Tennant Creek to work and uh, then I came back when uh, Emma was due and remonstrated with the uh, obstetrician that um, I only had 10 days leave, so this baby had to come one way or the other. <laughs> who was that? Was that T.T. Lee? Hey? Was that T.T. Lee? Who, who, who was the obstetrician? Uh, it was, oh gosh, I, I can think of his name, but um, no, much nicer name than that. Um, Andrew Miller. Surely not Andrew no, Miller. No, no, much. He was, um, he was a, he, he, anyway, he was a lovely bloke. And, right. And uh, so anyway, um, Julie ended up having a Caesar because, uh, you know, my big head was... Um, <laughs> <laughs> a feature. <laughs> and, uh, and so, uh, so yeah, that, uh, that was the first of three. And we, um, uh, yeah, Tom was then, uh, is the next one. He was bred while we were in Tenet. And then, um, uh, you know, we'd had, uh, it was an interesting place, Tenet. It was a lovely place to work, but... You know, after three months, I'd, I'd have to say one week, you know, look, it's Saturday morning, just let's go to Alice Springs. Just, you know. It's at four or 500 Ks, isn't it? Yeah, Thomas? 500 Ks. So you hop in the car and whip down to, to Alice Springs for a, a day and come back the next that, day. And just that Metropolis, break. Alice Springs. <laughs> Head up to the big smoke for the night. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was a 1,000 kilometres to come this way, so, yeah, you know, yeah. you, you made the decision and. Um, yeah, you know, Tennant was uh, was a really it was a booming place at the time. Um, what about, not, did you did you eat at the Dolly Pot? Oh yeah, the Dolly Pot was was famous, and, um, <laughs> and uh, it was a it was a lovely place. Karen really put on a great you know a great you know show there. Um, really good food at the Dolly Pot Inn. Yeah, so you knew Karen all from way back then. Way back then, Karen, uh, you know, Karen and and the family uh, were all um, you know part of those days and. And very involved in the community down there too at the time, and you know I was involved in Lions and and uh, Clean Up Australia, and you know I met the Governor General, uh, you know um, Hayden was his. Um, oh, Bill Hayden. Because mm. yeah. I was, uh, you know, I was involved with uh, with various things. Um, 
I, I was a Kiwanian at the time, but I went on leave and I got to Tennant Creek and I was told you have to either join Rotary or Lions. So um, <laughs> the, uh, the previous manager was a Lions guy, so I was taking the Lions because he was leaving. And, um, and then uh, the uh, president of the Lions Club uh, died of encephalitis. He was only a younger sort of bloke. He got bitten by a mozzie out on a youth camp and um, the second guy went uh, into um, Alice Springs to have a boil lance in his groin and he didn't come out. Uh, so that was the, the vice wow. president. The second vice president was 63 and he said, you guys can all get jump. Who's the youngest bloke here? Tony, you're it. You're the new president. <laughs> So uh, I was a president of Lions there for a couple of years, over a year or so, and it was a, it was again. You got involved in the community. They had some great events down there, the, you know, the camp drafts and the, the horse races, and then the, um, the go karts uh, down at, you know, Walkup, and uh, yeah, they were they were really good events, and you know, to get involved with them, um, and uh, and get involved in the community. I learned, I found out what um, iron bark is or ironwood trees are when I uh, went out camping and I had my new chainsaw that I'd bought and took it out there and I thought, oh, yeah, this this looks pretty good, this stuff. So I started cutting and I got halfway through this dry log and uh, there were strong sparks out. It was, yeah, <laughs> the chain was completely destroyed through the whole lot of way. That stuff was so hard I thought I'd hit it with the axe and it went ding. <laughs> <laughs> this timber's pretty hard out here, <laughs> pretty hardy stuff. <laughs> so uh, yeah, it was, and it was great. I, I met a lot of you know old gold prospectors from out the the Coronelli gold fields, and and a guy named John Love was uh, leaching gold out of the old uh, settlement uh, or sludge pits of of um, the town's um, you know uh, old gold reserves. And yeah, you know, they were really interesting guys. I was just doing some really clever basic stuff that you know Australians were renowned. There was nothing flash about it. You know, it was just black tarp out on the you know, on a big paddock and we throw some sludge on top and run a bit of acid through it and she'll catch up in this 44-gallon drum and, you know, when all the steel wool is sort of rotted, well, then we know it's time to throw it into a mould and we'll find some gold, <laughs> you know, astounding wow. stuff. And, you know, these yeah. guys were, it was it was really interesting. The, we had one old ATM there. And I, I'm sorry, I'll just keep going. But, you know, there was a, we had an ATM in, in this town and I'd never seen ATMs then. And let's think back, this is, you know, going back a few years, it's now, uh, what, uh, 91, 92. And, um, and so if, uh, there's an ATM in Catherine and there's an ATM in Tennant Creek and there's an ATM in Alice and we had the only one. So Christmas comes and we're getting stripped, you know, before Christmas by people driving through. The town's just getting emptied, all the cash uh. just being sucked out of town through this bloody <laughs> ATM. And, of course, it's... Um, it's seized uh, up and doesn't want to work. So being a <laughs> farmer's son, you know, <laughs> I've opened this machine up, said to the bloke, I need a new motor. She's, you know, she's cooking. He said, I, I can't come for 10 days. I said, I can't sit here for 10 days down <laughs> an ATM and all these people coming through, we're going to be murdered, you know. <laughs> so um, so I got this motor, pulled the machine apart. I had no idea what I was doing, but pulled this electric motor out and pulled it back off it and, and found there was a bearing that was a bit loose and got a bit of car grease and shoved it in this <laughs> thing and put it all back together, shoved it into the machine and, and by God, she worked. And um, and it kept pumping and every, you know, every day and a half I'd have to take it out because, you know, all the, the grease had got so hot it was dripping out of this thing. And, <laughs> and so I'd pack it full of more grease and shove it back in and 
the mechanic turned up in the new year and he says, uh, he says, you know, uh, opens up the machine and there's sort of smoke and all this <laughs> down, down the bottom and he, he says, what happened? I said, I just needed to keep working. <laughs> 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 was, uh, so, they, you know, it's, you just did what you had to do in those days um, to, uh, you know, to, to deal with it. It sounds like you really enjoyed tenant. Oh, look, it's like anything else. You've got to make it. It's like when we come up here into Darwin in the, you know, in the 80s, Tenant was still there. There were some people who were characters. They'd never really left the place. Uh, they made, you know, they made a go of it and you had to make a go of wherever you go. You know, you, you go and work in a place like that. You become part of the community. You, you enjoy it. And, um, and then you say, as we did at the time, anything looks good from Tenant. So um, <laughs> that was what I was offered. And, Mount uh, Gambia. Mount Gambia. So I, I, I was called by a guy there who'd worked up here, Mike Nolan, for many years, another legend of, uh, of Westpac days, and Gary Code, a few of the others. And I, uh, I was asked by him to come to Mount Gambia and sort out a problem they had. And the problem was that they'd had three administration managers in three months. And uh, the uh, in this branch, and what they'd done in 1992 was amalgamate 92 in the late 92. After 10 years of Westpac, they'd finally amalgamated the Bank of New South Wales and the Commercial Bank's offices into one new building. And of course, we've got girls who've worked in there, you know, who run these shows at the time. You know, country girls who they knew everything, they knew everyone. And they were suddenly told you're going to work together. This girl's in charge of you. That girl's in charge of you. And and it wasn't getting on. <laughs> who's the next uh, bloke uh, who's coming in from out of town to be your manager? <laughs> you know. Uh-huh. So anyway, I was I was asked to come there, and of course I um I pulled into town with a very pregnant Julie with Tom uh, and our little girl, and couldn't find anywhere to park near the bank. So uh, I've gone in there, finally met up with him. And the next morning I've gone in for a meeting before I started because it was too cold to work. It's just like you saying, Pete. Yeah. <laughs> too cold to work in Mount Gambia that day. I couldn't warm the house up. So uh, I had to stay home and keep feeding the fire until the house got warm. <laughs> and, uh, then Julie was still in the motel at the time and I, I said, you can't come around here, Julie. It's just too cold. And um, anyway, I went in and I said to them, well, where do you all park? And they said across the road, and I said, okay, meeting suspended. Go and move your cars away from the bank because <laughs> your customers can't get near the place. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they, all, they all looked at me and thought, who's this bloke? And I said, what, you've all got a problem with that? And, <laughs> and they all <laughs> left and moved their cars. And, uh, and so we, uh, we took control of the, the place at the time and, and sort of uh, started fixing a few of the problems. I just couldn't believe that a bank, I'd come from Tennant Creek where we had a, an A3 photocopier, uh, we had 10 staff, they had 35 staff and they had a, what you'd call an A4, about the size of a laptop computer, uh, but with no lid. And 35 <laughs> staff were using this as the photocopier. And I said, where did this come out of? They wow. said, that come from the little branch up the road. You should see the one, you know, so I stood in the middle of the office and I rang up the, the guy who'd sent me there and I said to him, mate, I had a problem. I can't find the photocopier. I can't find the the computers. I can't find anything. Where's it all gone? <laughs> and he said, "Oh, yeah, you know, it's all come from such." I said, "So, what sort of printer do you, you know, copy do you have?" And he said, oh, "I've got this type." I said, "I'll be there in four hours to pick it up." <laughs> 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 and uh, they heard this, and I, I said, "Right." And he uh, obviously the next day the new uh, the new equipment started to arrive, and that, just astounding. Nobody had taken a 
control of it. They'd all accepted that, you know, the bank's having tough times. So, you know, but this is a, now the second biggest branch in, in South Australia behind Adelaide and quite astounding. So, yeah, that was uh, that was me just being uh, me and and uh, so um, getting it done, getting it done. Yeah, our third daughter was um, uh, Marie. Our daughter was uh, was um, then produced in Mount Gambier, and uh, Julie told me in January that uh, she was pregnant, and uh, I'd already made the decision by then that I was coming back to Darwin to start this business. And so, uh, with a pregnant wife and two kids under two, we uh, left Mount Gambier and. Came back to Darwin in '95 to uh, to start Mortgage Choice. Right. And so, what made you decide to to uh, take on this franchise, Tony? Yeah, looked at um, in South Australia, and they were a sort of ahead. They had the um, the stuff going. Andrew Zobel had a business called the Loan Arranger, and I'd seen that operating. <laughs> Great um, name. The Loan Arranger, hi, mm-hmm. oh, yeah. And uh, I'd seen it operating, so I thought, yeah, that's got a good idea. And then Brian mm-hmm. Winslade from up here uh, oh, rang me yeah. and said. Um, you know, we're looking at this franchise. He was with Michael Lowe in Adam Lowe and Associates Accountants, and um, he said to me, "I'm oh, looking at this franchise in uh, in uh, Sydney." And I said, "Oh, that's interesting." He said, uh, "Do you reckon uh, it would work?" And I said, "Oh, yeah, sure, would actually in Darwin should work well." So um, it was interesting that I was right rewriting the Westpac's award at the time, working with the bank as well as doing this job, and I had to go to Melbourne. And I said, "Look, I'm going to be in Melbourne on the weekend. I'll come up to Sydney and." Um, and uh, meet up with you guys. And, of course, once I got there, I thought, this actually looks uh, quite good. This would work, you know. And uh, I went back and said to Julie, you know, um, this is December, and I said, oh, this, is, this business would work well in Darwin, and uh, I really want to be part of it. So, um, anyway, um, they rang again, just asked some questions. I said, actually, I'd like to, I reckon we should buy that. He said, what are you saying? I said, I reckon we should buy that and, uh, and make this work. And I said, I'm coming back to run it. Uh-huh. And uh, and so they said, oh, dude, we were wondering who we were going to get to manage the place. So uh, uh-huh. out of the blue, a pregnant wife and two kids, and um, and we said we're packed up and left Westpac after 15 years and come back to Darwin. And and you know your friends would say you're an idiot, and then uh, you know the others in in business would say you're an idiot, and those in banking would say, God, good on you, let's go and do this. Yeah, you know? yeah. It was uh, <laughs> it was good. When I got back, they said you should have been here last year. That's the you know, that was the boom year in Darwin in 94 and 93. And I thought when I write my first loan, that's going to be one more than I did last year. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was, was it just the, um, back then, was it just the, like at that stage, um, you know, obviously you had the big banks as you still have today, but the whole concept of mortgage brokers was, was quite new back then. Was it? Was Absolutely. It, did you have a you know a big panel of lenders to choose from, or was it quite narrow back then? Well, still, it was, it's a good question, Pete, because I came back here and I said, um, right, "Okay, who are our lenders?" And they said, "Actually, we don't have any. You've got no lenders." <laughs> and so my first job was uh, was to ring up, and it turned out the A and Z were pretty compliant and and keen to do business, and um, yeah. and I'd played footy with um, Mike uh, Seymour from, or he'd been part of the footy club and he was um, with TIO at the time and uh, Leon Braley had been with, uh, he was with BNZA which was another part of um, the NAB group and we'd played footy together up here and so I rang him up and said, hey, uh, you know, you guys are involved in this broker business down south, you know, how's about coming up here and, and you know, letting us get involved and mm. they did so it was, you know, the old footy connections from the 80s yeah. uh, that uh, set us up with uh, going ahead in the in the 90s in our own business and um 
and of course that then started it and slowly but surely many others have come behind and and uh, become um, brokers and a lot of businesses and then of course all the banks eventually joined in and mm. and, uh, and you know made it happen and at the time we weren't paid there was not the same income streams that are there for brokers you know in the uh, in the 90s and in and noughties but um, but certainly, uh, you know, it was an opportunity to do business and to help people, uh, you know, into uh, into home ownership, which was astounding for me. And we were very much focused on investors up here at the time, uh, because you know the market was forty percent investors, not as not that much in homeowners. Mm. But uh, it shifted. Mm. Did mortgage choice lead the way? Did they were they the first of the what we now know to be brokers? Uh, yeah, there were a couple of, um, in sort of, as I said, the loan arranger was operating. The Mortgage Choice started in 92 um, in uh, in its first incarnation. Um, but it, um, you know, Ozzy John had sort of started um, showing he wasn't a broker yet then. He was an alternative lender. Yeah. Um, and um, so sort of there'd been different types of businesses had started. Mortgage Choice was the first one that intended to become a publicly listed company from day one. And uh, so it was uh, originally just writing, starting businesses around Sydney. Then when it franchised um, and it, it spread out very quickly, um, then it went through a few little hiccups and, and in 2000, 2001, it floated and became a public company, um, which, uh, which made it grow. But, you know, there were many others then that um, formed consortiums and, and become much bigger as a result. And then Aussie became a broker and, you know, um, Wizard, uh, mm. you know, Mark Burris uh, kicked in and, you know, a few others like that. So uh, it was just a, a different time and we needed to desperately put in place some legislation at the time to protect uh, consumers because there was absolutely no consumer protection. You could just be, a, you know, with, with respect to every other profession, you could be a, a baker, a carpenter, you could be anything and just become a, a loan yeah. broker. Yeah. There was no, uh, no restrictions and... So in 2002, we started the Mortgage and Finance Association in the Territory um, to try and, um, and get some professionalism and, and join our cohorts in, in, you know, in um, conveyancing and, and others in being you know, uh, professional people in the industries uh, of home ownership, yeah. Mm. Mm. So you did that uh, for, uh, what, how many years now? 95 What's that, the MFAA? Yeah. Well, that was 2002, so uh, we started the MFAA and I was the advocate for, um, for many years and, you know, some really good people um, have come along. But, yeah, I was on the, the board and as an advocate until probably 2015. Right. And, um, and then uh, others came in and, and, you know, run ahead with it. It was really good. So how did you uh, fall into politics, Tony? Because I think... As long as I've known you, I don't think we've, you know, we may have talked about politics from time to time, but uh, you, you certainly did give me the indication that you were sort of going in hook, line and sinker until you rocked up with a bag one day. <laughs> <laughs> with cash, was it? Have and, cash in it? <laughs> it was an empty bag and there was, and there was a, bat, a bat inside it. <laughs> it took me back to my debt collecting days. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, look, I, I was uh, I was asked to um, to step in and and solve uh, or like take control of a few things um, that were uh, done and and by some interesting people and and of course um, from the country liberals and and the main thing was that obviously we'd had you know some some uh, 
apparent issues in um, in the country Liberals, and they related to foundation and a few other oh, different yeah. uh, things that people had uh, perceptions of problems. Mm. And what so, can you I tell us well, about that? I mean, were you involved in any of that Foundation Fifty One? No, see, I come in after a foundation had formed, mm. and pretty well was already you know, causing, uh, you know, angst amongst the membership, so... What was it? I mean, can you just explain that to me? Because I don't think I ever really looked in, you know, looked at it very closely. What is? What was it? it? Quite a good concept, actually, uh, a business group. Right. And, um, and the business group was um, uh, just a group of uh, business people, a bit like you might call the, you know, Darwin's major business group and a few other, you know, business associations. And, um, and they all had, uh, you know, common needs or some of them had, you know, common needs, and so rather than trying to do something on your own, uh, you know, you you could form together with a group of um, you know five or six other people in in that group. Um, Foundation Fifty One, no doubt, reflected uh, you know that they intended to have fifty one membership, uh, you know, membership of fifty one at the time, or oh, maybe I thought it might have had right some sort of connection to Area Fifty One, but no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, zoned out out there. Um, but yeah, that's that was its uh, its format, and and you know as a concept, it seemed very good. Um, where uh, where people's perception, um, as I came into it, and I had no idea of what it was when I first came in, but their perception was that one person ran everything uh, within the country Liberal, and that was probably where it become you know hard for people uh, within and outside the group to understand because. You know, when you had um, a personality like Graham Lewis, as strong as he was, um, you know, he was, uh, you know, the uh, the, the party uh, president, uh, sorry, party treasurer. He was, you know, a branch treasurer. He was involved with foundation as uh, one of its, um, you know, key people. And so there's a perception that, you know, money was uh, was the control of everything or the root of all evil. And... Um, and so, uh, you know, he had the uh, had the purse strings to, you know, everything. Now, whether that's right or wrong, you know, um, but certainly as I started going through it, there was no links between what was happening in Foundation and what was happening in the country Liberals uh, per se. You know, there was, um, there was no doubt members uh, had been sharing information uh, across both, um, um, but, uh, you know, the links weren't, uh, you know, weren't apparent. Um, in any of the, you know, the paperwork I went through, and and so yeah, my job was to uh, just have a look and see whether or not that uh, you know could be um, separated. And to do that, the best way was for me to take um, control of one of the areas, and it wasn't going to be something I didn't understand or want to be involved with. So uh, I took over as treasurer of the country Liberals, and that separated any link between you know uh, anything else and um, and the party. And um, and I was the treasurer, or, you know, for um, or for the last seven years. Mm. Um, and that was a uh, yeah, yeah. It was quite a tumultuous period, wasn't it? Well, it's a lot more about perception than it is about you know realities. You know, if people don't um, understand, and it is uh, you know, it's an organisation like all of these organisations. The people don't necessarily want to be, you know, uh, you know, flouted out there as you know. I'm such and such and I'm a member of this organisation. It was not a, a profile organisation like um, a political party. It was just a group of, you know, reasonably like-minded business people, not a not like a, um, you know, the BNIs or the, 
you know, the, the you know, whatever the else. Yeah, the different cults and organisations we've had. Pete, you were a BNI member, weren't you? <laughs> Neither confirming or denying. <laughs> but these were these were just interesting, um, you know, groups that went on, and and it was one of the major ones, and uh, and a major player, and and so. Uh, I think like the Admiralty uh, Club was it, is the Admiralty Club another one of those? Well, I mean that's probably is, uh, and so would be if you wanted to go that far. The, the guys who um, have um, you know beef and burgundy, uh, you know, they do some good um, to for the community, you know, for their uh, you know their area of the community. And um, uh, while this would have been simply a business group uh, looking to um, you know to uh, get information and pr propose things and perhaps have some influence, uh, you know, across uh, the developments uh, for the Northern Territory and other places. So, so it wasn't a I don't know what his concept was because I never got inside it yeah. uh, to be able to understand. All I needed to do was make sure there was a separation of uh, powers between um, uh, the political party and the, and the organisation so the perception, you know, was removed uh, of any, you know, any links. Right. So yeah, yeah, that was me um, involved with uh, with that as far as I uh, I got involved. And so, what was it like being treasurer while uh, you know Giles and uh, and Tolna were running the place? <laughs> There's probably <laughs> not much to say there. Uh, <laughs> you know, the, it, you've only got to look at the numbers. You know, um, uh, when you're looking at you know it's a public information. You know, uh, the numbers say it. You know, um, in the uh, the days, you know, there was there was a lot of support for country liberals. Yeah. Um, in 2016, there was a lot less support for their country liberals than there was in 2012, and um, and certainly, you know, even though the 2008 uh, election only brought four people in, from my recollections, um, yeah. I wasn't a member of the party back in 08. In fact, I wasn't a member in 2012, although I did put my hand up at the time. Um, you know, for uh, for a look at it, um, but I was away on a cruise in two th at the 2012 uh, election. So um, and your priorities were right. Said you, I said you had your priorities right. Well, I, I did. I won an award with uh, Morgan's Choice. I've become a uh, it's only uh, you know working Hall of Fame member uh, in the group, and um, and so I uh, I took that fairly seriously and said mm. to Julie. This will probably be the last time we ever win an award. Uh, <laughs> let's take this one. And there was a cruise up through, um, you know, through Alaska. As in, you know, it was nice. It was a good trip. Oh wow! Um, and you've also got a connection to Malandiri McCarthy too, don't you? Or you're, you're well, yeah. That's uh, that goes back a long time. And and um, back in uh, when Emma started school, CJ, her um, her son was uh, just starting school, and and we were both at Holy Spirit um, in Casarina and. Uh, and I remember, you know, little CJ coming crawling along, and and there was discussions about how the school had to adapt uh, to uh, to be able to accommodate this young fellow who uh, was reasonably wheelchair bound, although he's pretty um, outgoing and uh, and nothing much slowed him down. And so um, yeah, we met there at uh, at the school and um, and had an association there for a number of years and. And in a lot of things, I, I respected, uh, you know, what she was doing and trying to do, particularly for her communities out in the, you know, the sort of Gulf country there um, where she came from. And, and you know, it was, um, it was always interesting when she went out of ABC and into, into politics. I, uh, I always enjoyed having a conversation with her about, 
you know, what she was trying to achieve for her, you know, for the people there in starting up small businesses and, and getting some, uh, you know, some activity going in the, in the townships that, um, you know, uh, she felt were able to, uh, to become a little bit more self-determining. So, yeah, always felt um, a fairly close um, connection with her. Mm. And and so you've decided to throw your hand in. <laughs> yeah, I suppose um, you know I saw um, it wasn't actually about uh, what has what's happened since as a consequence, but you know I could see some real value in what was happening or the way Impex was being used to um, encourage uh, people to um, to come to work. And uh, whilst not a lot of uh, I mean, a lot of Darwin people had employment. We had a lot of FIFO workers here. Um, but there's also a lot of people uh, who um, were given an, a work opportunity, um, people uh, from Indigenous uh, communities and people from Darwin, uh, you know, with um, an Indigenous backgrounds. And I just felt that there was a real opportunity here for, the, for them to, uh, to progress and, and make a generational change. And, and I thought, you know, as we come through... Uh, the end of the impacts, you know, we're going from offshore gas and the training and development that these guys had received and girls had received and in this work would be able to just immediately um, be uh, placed into onshore, you know, gas development, even in just preparing and and developing, um, you know, roads and, and pads, but also in the technical skills that were flowing through. And, um and I thought, you know, that's going to be great. They're going to transition out of there and, and there's going to be this this immediate move. And so I was really buoyed up about how we were going to be able to take uh, that step forward and, and have, um, you know, uh, kids looking to, uh, you know, to their uncles and cousins and parents who were, you know, in, in really good worthwhile work. And uh, then suddenly the rug got pulled out from under the whole thing and these people are sat, you know, with no jobs and, and you know, no opportunities to move forward. And I, I just felt this is this is wrong. This is the the one thing that we've got to get to the territory is you just can't keep going, oh, we're going this way and oh no, 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 we're not. We're going that way. We need to give the opportunity for business to invest and to keep giving that and driving forward that uh, that future for Territorians, that basically everyone in the, in the Territory who's capable of working wants to work and can work in the community where they want to live because the opportunities are starting to expand out into these areas. And then on the back of the stuff that Mullandiri is trying to do in her communities, you would have, you know, you'd need a baker there, you'd need a butcher there, you would need an electrician there, you would need these. And then there would be people bringing money into their communities because they had really good worthwhile skills. And the impact on that is that the kids start to see a reason to be educated, a reason to go to school and a reason to grow up in their community and stay close to their culture, but at the same time have some worthwhile uh, opportunities uh, for their future. So that's where I was heading and I still want to make that change. I still want to see that opportunity given and us just turn the corner, just start it, a bit like I spoke um, in my Kiwanis days and had Luke Gosling come to speak to us at one of our conventions, and uh, Luke had been over in um, in uh, in uh, you know, Timor Leste uh, with his army days and post army, and the Kiwanis Club had started this um, as a group uh, had started this orphanage um, uh, dairy herd um, out of Geelong, brought it up here, 
acclimatised them, sent them over to Indonesia, and they were producing milk for whole communities of people. You know, up to 5,000 people were being uh, given milk a day. And I thought, yeah, what a great project. And what Luke spoke about afterwards was not the fact that the milk was produced, but what it did was bring people to a community. And because they were there, then the medical people said, well, they're there, so why don't we put our our uh, medical group in here and we can, you know, uh, make a difference. So they came in and then somebody else came in and said, well, why don't we do, you know, this and work on this, this one little, you know, um, uh, area. It's only a small group, but we've got this captured group of people. And so what I realised was that one little directional change, one little opportunity given that we thought was all about just feeding the kids actually led to other people going, well, hang on, now that they're doing that, here's a great idea. So all these wonderful ideas start to feed in and take over what was just a small thing. And that's where I see us being able to do things here as well, by saying let's just set a direction and make sure that it's locked in and then other people will come behind and go, well, hang on, we can do this and we can take this opportunity. And that includes, you know, uh, developing solar when you've got a community that can afford to pay its bills you know, because it's generating good income, other businesses can now afford to start putting business, uh, you know, industries in there that are able to support that community in its growth and development and receive a return for their investment, which is what we need. Tony, so that's my reason for joining politics. I love the enthusiasm. <clears throat> yeah, sorry to be, you know, but... I've no, no, don't, don't apologise. I, I, I love the enthusiasm. What I would say is that, you know, I, I've spent 15 years off and on in the Territory and I saw it during the peak and I saw the impacts, impact before and after and I've seen the, the impact of successive governments um, and I, I would say to someone like you that Territory politics needs that. You know, I see all these robots now on the TV that, can do a 30-second press grab and, you know, can say what you want to hear. But the reality is we've seen back-to-back -back governments achieve not much. Um, yeah. the, N the NT's a basket case. We, we don't know how much debt it's in because apparently we don't need to do budgets <laughs> before the election. And, yeah. you know, you see a lot of people come and go from politics who come in with the same level of enthusiasm as you, think these guys are all just a pack of idiots and walk out the other side. How, how do we turn this around? How do we turn around too much debt, over-bloated public service who get paid too much, have too much power? How, how, how do we make it the, the place that you just described again? Yeah, I think the, the main thing is to actually look at what we're trying to achieve as outcomes and start to work towards what outcomes we're trying to get and not just look at, well, what can I do to fix the problem here? What we're looking at is what outcome we're looking for in the long term. We've been dumped with a whole range of projects and programs that have been created by, you know, other parts of Australia, federal governments as well successively and, you know, um, in the Territory. If somebody has started something and handed it over and it's not working, it's time to say, take it back. It's, you know, we don't need the money and the problem that comes with it. Just take it back, stop that. We think we can do something better. Engage with the people that are, are the recipients and say, for God's sake, guys, what are you trying to achieve here? You know, what is the outcome that you are looking for? And if and we'll all agree on 
yeah, that's the way we want to go forward. Okay, now let's find a pathway and start working towards that. It won't happen today, but it's going to happen if you start to do these steps and put the steps in place. So, yeah, debt's uh, a tough thing to manage when you've got, you know, uh, a point where a business is, you know, perhaps, um, you know, earning less than it's got as outgoing costs, um, you know, ongoing, and particularly whether it's saddled with a lot of debt, uh, no business really gets through. So to an extent, we've got to look at the projects and programs that we are receiving funding for and say, righto, are these things worthwhile? And become genuine about what is um, a program of value and a program that we're actually going to do something with. And if it's not, if you're ingenuine about it, just move it aside and tell, you know, honourably tell people, uh, even at a federal level, this isn't what we need. We need this, uh, you know, the alternate engagement and take the smoke and mirrors and throw them away and smash them and just come through because we're at that point where it's uh, it's almost like um, we're at, you know, that lowest point where there's only one way to go. You either get up or go or drop out. Mm. Uh, you know, there's no low. We just can't keep muddling along on, you know, at this level of debt with the level of income that we generate. It's just not feasible. And uh, and if we can change that and and stop doing things that are impractical just because, you know, it makes us feel good, um, you know, it's time to, to start to look at what is the outcome you're trying to achieve. And if you're not delivering that outcome, give us some alternative that allows us to move forward and me, just take some small steps. Let, let mm. me just make some observations here, Tony. Um, you know, at the risk of potentially being politically incorrect and uh, all sorts of other nasties, um, you, you know, just just observations, mate, you know, there are so many, I don't know, how many Aboriginal communities are there do you, that you're aware of? I couldn't give you a number, so, yeah, I only know the major ones, and uh, but, you know, there's many outstations and, and um, you know, and smaller groups around with uh, as few as 15 and as many as, you know, a 1,000 people. Right. So um, I, I, I've never been to an Aboriginal community. Have you, Pete? Uh, does Baggett count? No, uh, uh, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, Tony, have you? Nice people at Baggett. Yeah, no, I know what you mean. You mean out of town. Tony, have you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I work in Tennant Creek and Jabiru, so, you know, um, and around Alice and Catherine. So, yeah, I've been out to communities, um, you know, uh, to, um, you know, to the various places that we had associations with. And what's it like uh, out there? Banking. I think you know. I've got to be frank. It's changed. It's some things have changed in uh, in thirty years, and some things haven't. Um, there's a lot of new homes that have gone up in uh, these communities. Uh, some are really actually feel quite inviting when you get there, and others feel quite uncomfortable. Um, you know, when you arrive, and uh, it really depends on the person. I think um, the majority of the ones that I had been to. You know, uh, it's changed a lot because um, they went from, you know, piles of um, of cans and rubbish on the way into very clean, tidy communities. As you know, tidy towns kicked in to a degree. I was involved with tidy towns, and you know, uh, some communities got right behind it, did massive cleanups. And but I still feel there there seems to be a a lack of 
of real um, work opportunity, real, um, you know, um, yeah, business opportunities. But what I'm hearing now, and I haven't been to see yet, is there are communities sort of, um, you know, south of uh, or between Tennant and Alice now who are, you know, growing crops, um, vegetables, um, uh, melons. Um, they, you know, have got citrus, they've got grapes, and they're starting to trial you know, these uh, types of um, agricultural, um, you know, events. And, you know, that's an opportunity uh, of seeing something real and worthwhile. And we're seeing, you know, some of the solar projects being built and communities being able to get involved and, and run those uh, and look after those. And, you know, uh, with the gas and oil, we're seeing people being able to take on roles of, of um, you know, monitoring air and air quality and water quality and so on. So there's opportunities coming but you know in real terms you know uh, uh, they look unplanned if I would want to put any real spin on it I haven't been out to what air pepper you know those uh, the um, uh, Port Keats area but uh, a lot of the other places I've been they seemed you know largely unplanned it looked like the houses were fairly scattered around rather than like we would address them on a street by street. And, of course, it depended on what season you're in. So there's a, you know, sometimes a really good vibe about them. Um, same as, you know, if you've driven through Elliot, sometimes, you know, you see uh, the camps, uh, townships, uh, camps around Elliot, you know, as, as vibrant and looking good and sometimes they're looking bedraggled and, uh, and untidy, you know, and, and it really, I think, somewhat, you know, seasonal and, you know, who's been given a contract to do something or such makes a big difference. So I just, you know, I think you're right. It's a... Well, the re I mean, I just, I just feel confused uh, and slightly dispirited because I just feel there seems to be, you know, uh, a political need to to get these communities working and, 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 and somehow measured on the same level as, you know, the, the rest of, you know, uh, our, you know, Western culture, if you like. Yet when I listen closely to some um, Aboriginal people talk about this stuff, uh, th there is a massive disconnect between Aboriginal culture and Western culture that I don't think can ever be bridged. That, that's my that, that, that's my just that's my own personal opinion based on what I've heard, you know, and, and thought about myself. Mm. And then I look at you know there seems to be double standards between what we do. Um, you know, I mean, you look at a lot of the towns, the the, the, the old country towns in in parts of the rest of the country that have become ghost towns simply because there are no job opportunities and you know industry left years and years ago. And they've just died a natural death and, and people have moved out of there and gone to the city or, or somewhere else. Um, you know, we had someone on recently from Alice Springs. In fact, we've had a couple of people on from Alice Springs and we've spoken about the crime in Alice Springs. Uh, and, you know, the impression that I get is that uh, people come to the town from the communities and it's, uh, you know, that they find themselves, they're stuck in Alice Springs for a variety of reasons and and they want to come to Alice Springs because that's where you can buy grog and you know other things. I, I just I don't know. I just don't. I, I don't have a lot of faith in in government 
to actually sort this out because I don't think it's sortable, to be honest. Yeah, it's a fair point, Leon, and, and I suppose it's it's the very, uh, you know, we can bury our heads in the sand and say, yeah, it's all too hard. Um, the people need to want to be behind it, and, and I've been here long enough to, to have engaged with them. Um, you know, working out in Jabiru, I just sort of think of those days, you know, such resourceful people. You know, sure, there were people who were just, uh, you know, getting by and such, but, yeah, there would be times I'd... Um, yeah, there was that bush mechanics thing, you know, where you see the guys, you know, taking uh, some parts from old cars and, and making something work. You know, the number of times I'd be coming into town from Jabiru and see people, you know, run out of fuel or broken down on the side of the road, and I always carried tools and fuel with me. So, you know, they'd, they'd be bleed a, a diesel motor, you know, uh, as fast as, I, you know, anyone I've ever seen have the thing back on the road in a, in a manner of, you know, of 10 minutes uh, when it's fueled up, you know, they'd know what was wrong when something broke down. They just didn't have the, the tools or the part to fix it. And you'd pull up with a, you know, toolbox and, and you know, wouldn't touch a thing. You know, 15 minutes later, you know, they're packing the tools up, throwing them back in your car and they're on their way. Uh, really resourceful people, so capable, you know, and self-trained uh, by necessity and opportunity. You see, and I think... Yeah, I think they've lost uh, that opportunity, which is now preventing them, you know, showing their capacity. Well, let me tell you what I think, right? I think for the longest time we have tried to, to make Aboriginal people conform to our way of living and our, our views of the world. And, you know, I have... I have come I'm on a journey listening to uh, Aboriginal people whenever I can. Um, and look, I'm going to name names. Jason Elskud is one of those people that I have learnt a lot from about just simple things like the way we build housing, uh, which is just not, uh, it just doesn't work uh, in Aboriginal culture because of the way uh, family groups are set up uh, yep. and, and, and how they're supposed to congregate. So, you know, I, I don't know how much money and time, you know, governments have thrown at this problem without, I don't think, necessarily understanding it. I'll tell you what I'd like to see, Tony. I would like to see schools, for example, um, and I think about my children going to, uh, go to their school. I, I would like to see schools um, spend part of their time in communities rather than bring Aboriginal people to the city and, and have them, you know, uh, conform to our way of schooling. We ought to. I, I, it really starts, it's a generational thing. I think we ought to take some of our children and have them spend, you know, time, four to six weeks or whatever it is, learning in, in uh, you know, in an Aboriginal environment, learning in a community environment. Well, this is what it's like, you know, and get our kids understanding Aboriginal culture. I mean, we spend so much time teaching our children Chinese and Indonesian and all the rest of it, right? Yet 35% of the Northern Territory is Aboriginal. Yet we don't talk about Aboriginal language. We don't talk about Aboriginal culture. I mean, Christ, Charles Darwin University doesn't even have a degree in Aboriginal studies. I don't know. I'm just yeah. asking the question out loud. We don't. We, yeah. Everything that we do seems to me to 
bring to try and bring Aboriginal people across the divide into our culture. And I don't think it has really worked all that well. And I think that part of, of us moving forward in the 21st century is for us to go into Aboriginal culture, to go into Aboriginal communities. And for, you know, I think for me personally that, you know, that the opportunities is gone, but for my children, uh, you know, and for the youth of the Northern Territory to actually get in there and understand that is one differentiator. I mean, if we're going to teach the rest of Australia something, if we're going to, uh, create a difference. I mean, we always say the territory is different, the territory is different, you know, blah, blah, blah. I get a bit sick of hearing that sometimes. But if we're going to create a differentiator, you know, surely part of it would be our understanding of Aboriginal culture far surpasses the rest of Australia and we can teach the rest of Australia something. That, to me, would be a worthwhile goal. Leon, ask people in New South Wales, in Sydney, where Alice Springs is, uh, whereas Rock is. Uh, you know, uh, in my job, how many times, you know, in banking I've been asked, um, can you just drop down there and, and get a signature on that piece of paper? You know, <laughs> and to be quite frank, you know, there have been times I've, I've done that. You know, I've chartered a plane and flown out to a community to get some, you know, signatures on things that were necessary. Um, but, you know, they just don't understand. You say, you know, well, sorry, but Ayers Rock is closer to you in Sydney than it is to me in Darwin. You know, it's, yeah. uh, they, don't, they don't grasp it. Now, this is talking about just people in Australia. We've got 100,000 voters here who are non-Indigenous and, uh, or maybe, maybe 110 and, and you know, 20,000 that are. Now, you know, kind of you, you sort of think uh, how can we make a difference and how can just understanding it within the Territory, you know, make a difference? But it will make a start. Um, my nephew's uh, been up here in Darwin in those Aboriginal communities. Even in school days, as Year 11 students, they, uh, you know, a couple of them were invited to, uh, from Leangatha to come uh, up to uh, Ramanjining and um, Lake Avella and, uh, you know, different places to spend a week at a time. And, uh, and they did. And then a couple of kids from, you know, that community went, uh, you know, went down to Leangatha and, and spent time in the school there as a, a you know, a, um, an understanding and, and school interchange, I suppose. It's something that you're quite right. It has a big bearing and a big uh, impact. And it's had an impact, you know, on, uh, on the family and, and the way they've, you know, they've grown up by understanding, you know, those things. But you're right. I think it's a very, very, a blind culture to think that um, a handful of people in Darwin know what's going on in the communities uh, around the Northern Territory. Um, that even, uh, you know, that the interaction between the, uh, the communities themselves and the organisations uh, that are representing them are not, not necessarily, you know, thinking and pulling in the same direction. And if government are then looking to try and, and you know, interpose its thoughts and ideas, it's, it's a lost cause and that's where I talk about outcomes needing to, you know, to change. We need to look at uh, what is the outcome we're trying to achieve, not just for survival now but for generational change and that, as you said, understanding is a big part of it. 
and we're not the only culture in the world that's had to deal with this. You know, we've, there's plenty of others that have uh, dealt true. with it before us. So why are we continuously trying to reinvent the wheel instead of going and obtaining that information and bringing the experts here? Um, you know, we built a wharf over there in, um, in, in you know, the uh, uh, bottom of Berrimah there and the damn thing fell over. You know, they built on mm. on reclaimed land, not a Dutchman to be seen anywhere. You know, <laughs> if they, they brought somebody over and knew how to deal with reclaimed land, they yeah. probably wouldn't have had the damn thing fall over, you know, and the same thing applies, you know, to these. If you bring people who've been there and achieved something, they can then relate to the people who are there and together they can work out, is this going to work for us or is it not? And that doesn't mean sending people away to see, but to bring the knowledge, you know, through and uh, and have them say, I reckon we can work with that. Yeah, I think we can find a, a way through that. And uh, that's going to be good for our, you know, our kids in the long run. And if it isn't, stop doing it and start on a new, you mm. know, track. So, Tony, um, we we know that uh, the, the um, CLP lineup was talked about a few weeks ago in terms of uh, some of the key players if, if they win their seats uh, on August 22. Uh, what are you going to be doing if... Um, if you get in the seat of Casuarina, what, what what expertise do you bring to the table, and and what are you going to look to do in a in a CLP government, or or in fact a coalition government? Um, Peter, I think anything I'm asked to do, to be quite frank, I'm <laughs> um, I'm really uh, you know I've worked as a, a fix it man uh, in a number of uh, roles in in banking. I, I I recall myself being you know a bloke to go and fix a problem. Uh, and not stay too long because I'll create a whole heap of new ones myself. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, it's basically go, you know, and do what is necessary and needed, you know. But you know, I see myself as having a, a history in, in um, you know, in banking. But um, my background is, is uh, you know, is really the land um, and, uh, and community engagement with people. So, you know, I, I think uh, there are probably two areas, business, um, lands and um, and community are the areas that I feel you know attached to. Um, I certainly understand finance, um, but uh, mm. you know I, I'm not fussed whether I uh, have to ever you know take a pencil to a piece of paper or not. But it won't <laughs> stop me um, you know having a uh, having something to say about it and to have input and impact on it. But yeah, look, it's whatever's necessary, and uh, you know whatever I feel. I can make a difference doing because I certainly don't want to be sitting there growing old, um, older, um, you know, doing uh, doing nothing. It's uh, you know, I'm, I'm looking to make a difference that people can work from. Uh, I certainly know I can't change it in my lifetime, but mm -hmm. I can start uh, setting some pathways that uh, you know, if people can adapt and adopt what I think is a good idea, and I can sell it to people, maybe we can make a difference over time. Mm. Um, you said you weren't there in 2008 and 2012, um, but the Territory people certainly sent a strong message um, to the CLP at the 2016 election. Uh, what's the party learnt and what's the party going to do differently this time around? Look, uh, you know, the, a party is, uh, is an evolving, you know, beast. Um, and uh, and I'll be you know, quite frank. There's still uh, there is still some um, 
you know, some history there, and some of that history is very good. Um, but uh, when I look at the candidates this time, uh, it's a vastly different uh, group of people. And, and I say that uh, really to a degree from a political sp uh, perspective, um, many of us are uh, actually not uh, political animals and don't have uh, a history in, uh, in politics or even, for that matter, in representative um, you know, organisations. But there's a real a core there of those. Um, historically, when I, I look at the 2016, uh, I'm not saying they were bad. They were good people, uh, but they came from uh, within the uh, the government. They were fifth floor, you know, people who were either standing for re-election or, you know, um, uh, advisors to government. And one of the great things I see in the group of people that are out here now, they are people coming into politics, you know, at a at a point in time from business, industry, and you know, uh, different uh, walks of life. Uh, sure, we've got a couple of Lord Mayors, but they've got history, um, you know, elsewhere. They've done, you know, they've run businesses. Uh, they've been engaged in in public life. They've been engaged in um, public service. So, you know, there's a group of, uh, of fresh uh, people um, who have uh, an inkling to do some good and make some change. And, uh, you know, whilst they think in a... Um, in a reasonably like-minded way, I reckon there'll be a little bit of, um, you know, uh, discussion about how to go about it and, um, you know, uh, not what's wanting to be achieved. But the one key item is get some stability and um, and belief back into the Territory and give some certainty so to business and industry that we're not just open but we're going to be a good place to do business over a long period of time. So we see some of the private investment that's absolutely essential to the Northern Territory's, you know, growth and development out of what is really, you know, a mixed economy of first and third world, uh, you know, opportunities. We need to start to give, uh, need to give business and industry, you know, the confidence to come and invest and to stay and employ the local people in, uh, in being, uh, you know, um, able to grow and develop together into a uh, strong, long-term uh, economy that the rest of Australia looks up to and says, you know, these guys in the north, they know what they're doing. Well, Tony, on that note, I think uh, we'll let you take your leave and, and get back to campaigning. <laughs> Thank uh, you, gentlemen. We, uh, we wish you all the best, uh, as we do to all candidates running for office. I think uh, it's a commendable thing to do. I think it's a hard thing to do. I'd like you to, uh, to speak to uh, the Electoral Commissioner uh, at some stage and maybe suggest that in, in future, uh, candidates don't have to run around trying to raise money for, uh, you know, for, to run for office. And it should be something that should yeah. come out of the public purse, I think, because... Uh, it would make things a lot more transparent. Uh, people are less inclined to do dodgy things, um, yep. uh, you know, and and we might get a, a better, you know, quality or class of, of candidates running, I suspect. Um, but I don't know. Um, nonetheless, uh, Tony Skelly, it's, um, it's been a pleasure having you on the podcast and um, we hope to talk to you again soon. Been a pleasure being here. Thanks, Peter. Thank you, Leon. 
You've been listening to the Territory Story Podcast with Leon Logan-Nathan and Peter Gowers. For more episodes, search Territory Story Podcast on all leading podcasting platforms, the Territory Story Podcast. Thanks to Opie Dennis Digital Marketing, your local digital marketing agency.